Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's good to see you this morning. There, as I said a moment ago, there are some study notes. Most of you who who've been here various times have them, but if you don't, and we're on, I don't know what page it's 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 uh, study eight is what we're we're on today. It's actually got outlines for eleven because it goes all the way through Ephesians, but we're not going. We don't have the time. We only have nine Bible studies, so it's uh, number eight. You know that the theme is the many splendored wisdom of God. Studies in Ephesians 1 to 5, God's many splendored wisdom, his grand design for the redemption of the world and our participation in it. Let's sing the song we've been singing in these mornings. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes out, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul. I'll worship your holy name. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the thoughts of our hearts, all of our response to you, bring praise and honor and glory to your name. We ask you to open this, your word, to our hearts. Lord, the words are there and they have meaning and we need to study them, but we need the, the, also the enlightenment of your blessed Holy Spirit. Now may all we say and do bring, be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could have that lights on in the center, thanks. That's good. Okay, we're at unit four in Ephesians. That's the last section. This is life in accord with the many splendored wisdom of God. It's very important to read within the context of the whole book. Every, Paul is assuming you've heard what he said. You know, Ephesians and all the letters of the New Testament were, were written to be read in public. And he's assuming you've, we've heard everything that he has said about... Um, uh, God's grand design for the, for the redemption of the universe, culminating in his great prayer that these realities will be real in our lives, that we'll be strengthened in the inner person by the Holy Spirit. Christ will be formed within us, that we will be rooted and grounded in love, that we might be filled up into all the fullness of God as we partake of the one body of Christ. Um, Reconciled between Jew, Jewish believers, Old Testament people of God, and the nations of the world, one body, one made one body in Christ, with one spirit, um, uh, with access directly in one spirit to God the Father, that we might be filled up into all the fullness of God. And then he tells us in in the last part of Ephesians, beginning with chapter four, how we should live in light of this grand reality and of our participation and privileges in it. Um, we look for uh, uh, life in accord with the many splendid wisdom of God. And I've used this. This is, of course, a, well, you can't see it up there, can you? 
So what? It's a picture of Ephesus, of, of uh, the street in Ephesus, because it, this life is a road that we walk, a path that we follow. Yesterday, we did Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, walk worthy of your calling in harmony. Walk worthy of the calling with which God has called you in the full unity of the body of Christ. Today is sort of the negative side of that. Stop walking as unbelievers in futility. Stop walking as unbelievers in futility, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Paul begins with verse 17. You have the scripture there in your outline, so it's, it's there before you. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the nations walk. Um, this is a very solemn beginning. So this I say and affirm, this I say and testify. Paul wants us to know he's very serious about what he is saying here. That this is I say and I testify, I'm bearing witness to the truth in the Lord with all that I am as, a, as an apostle. No longer walk as the nations walk. As, as the, as the un, here nations means the unconverted peoples of the world, the people who are apart, apart from Christ. No longer walk as they walk. You know, we've talked about this word walk a number of times. That's very, Paul uses it very deliberately. It's very concrete. It's very step by step. It's very day by day. And when we walk uh, uh, following the Lord, it's directional. We're walking in obedience. When we walk in the ways of the world, we're wandering around, rambling around. But it's a very concrete daily uh, pattern of life. We're no longer to walk as they walked. Um, but to walk worthy of the calling that God, which, with, to which God has called us. Now, Paul is not just a moralist. Paul is not just saying, and I want you to do better. I want you to walk in a different way. Stop doing that and start doing this. Here's what you're supposed to do. Do, 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 do this. There are things to do, but he doesn't begin that way. Paul begins by talking about who we are. He begins by talking about, you know, in all that I've said about you, God is making you and has made you a new person. The text uses the word self. I think the word person is better um, the translation we have. So first he gives us a description of the old person that we were and then transition to the new person. But that's the start and that's the beginning. As we've heard in so many of the messages that Brother John has been preaching, it's from the inside out. It's God's transformation from the end. It's not trying to put some new laws and rules on, on the outside. This is not part of my notes, but I'm gonna share it with you. I remember very distinctly my youngest daughter. She wasn't um, out in drugs or anything like bad like that, but she was pushing the traces a bit. And I remember distinct, God, God sort of really guided me in something particular to say and do with her and her boyfriend. But it was four o'clock in the morning. She came out with tears in her eyes and said, Dad, I don't want to be this way anymore. Now, I won't tell you there was never any problem after that, but I will tell you this, we were playing in a new ball field because she had given her heart fully to Jesus and there was something different within. There was a whole different course of life it's that that Paul is talking about. You're, you're to be a new person. Do not then, the, here's the old person. The old person, the, the un, ungodly person, the person separated from Christ, walked in the futility of their minds, being darkened 
in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, uh, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Paul leaves no doubt as to the ugly nature of this old person. They lived in the futility of their mind. They had no purpose. They had no goal. Their, their thinking was futile and twisted and perverted. And we can see that in the world around us today. The people apart from Christ are one running here for running there, trying to find some pleasure to satisfy them, and trying to find some way of justifying their running around and what they are doing, the futility of their minds. Um, we're, we're reminded of what Paul has, has already said about their former conduct when they were without hope and godless in the world, when they followed the lust of their flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. And that time they were children of wrath, Futility, without purpose, without goal, without anchor, justifying and deceiving themselves, uh, guided by the whimsical desires of their own mind and their own heart. Um, the pursuit of sinful desires produces darkness in the understanding. We're told that they were darkened in their mind. They could not un understand. The more they lived this way, the darker their minds became, the more clouded their thoughts became, their thinking became, the more distorted by their own sin and their own self-justification. Um, they're excluded from the, the life of God. Oh, that's a terrible phrase. They were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The ign ignorance is not always excusable. Yes, they have not necessarily heard the gospel yet, but they have rejected the truth that they had about God, as Paul tells us in, in chapter 1. And ignorance is sometimes willful. It's sometimes intentional. Sometimes we hold on to our ignorance. We do not want to give it, give it up. So they're at least partly responsible for this because they had rejected the knowledge of God that was available for them. And that leads to a hardened heart, a calloused heart, they become insensitive. They take unfair advantage of other people. Whatever sexual promiscuity they want to pursue, they pursue. Um, their former practices no longer titillate. This is how hardness becomes callousness. Their former practice no longer titillates them or satisfies them due to their callousness. So they give themselves over completely, Paul says, to sensuality. Um, to work all kinds of in the, all kinds of impurity with greediness. This is the person who is pursuing sin. This is where sin leads. You pursue it; it no longer satisfies. So you pursue it more. It no longer satisfies. You pursue it more. You become hardened and insensitive to to the to the sinful um, uh, way of life, and you get to the place where it's just a, a compulsion. And there's no longer any satisfaction or desire that comes from it. And you greedily pursue it, just like somebody who's given over to gluttony. They don't really enjoy their food. They just eat more and more and more because there's some compulsion if they don't. This is the kind of life that they're led to. More and more money, more and more sex, more and more whatever, uh, more and more odd sex to try to satisfy, and it doesn't satisfy. This is the old person, as Paul describes, 
describes that person, and it's not a very pretty kind of life. Now, not everyone has gone that far, but that's where the life of the old person leads. But then we come in verse 20 to transformation to the new person. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This old is absolutely not the way of Christ. Paul says, you know this, if you have heard of the word of truth uh, and have been of Jesus, if you've heard Jesus and you've been instructed in the things of God and in the truth that is in Jesus. Now, the conditional there, it's probably causal. These people have heard, they have been instructed, they do know the truth as it is in Jesus, but Paul puts it this way because he wants their response. He wants them to say, yes, we have heard it. Yes, we know the truth. Yes, we have been instructed. Yes, we know the truth in Jesus. That old way is not ours. We have, we have grasped it. Paul has called it. We have heard it. We have been taught it. We know that truth is in Jesus. It's thoroughly ours. We are, we are the ones who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have, we, our transgressions have been removed. We have been made new in Christ. Thus as believers, Paul says, you're to lay aside the old person, that person that Paul has been describing. After all, it is being corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. Corruption is a manifold process. It's being corrupted by, by its being, becoming more and more evil, as we've already talked about. You become more and more hardened in it. But corruption also just degenerates the person as a person. Do you know sin is always destructive in our lives? It's always degenerating us. It's always pulling us away from God and twisting who we are. And even contemporary research makes us even more scary because we're told how we live makes pathways in our brain when we reinforce that makes actual neural connections. And um, we, 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 are, we actually, when we pursue sin, it actually changes us and twists us and deforms us. It's, but we're to leave that old way of life behind, all these lusts, the thrills of the old that diminish, the agony that results um, from, from living that old life and progressing in it, but we are to, how do we leave it behind? What does Paul say? He doesn't just say, leave the old person behind, take the new. We used to have a song we sang way back when I was in Africa in chapel in the boys' school, but you probably heard it. Maybe some of you heard it. The best thing in my life I ever did do was to take off the old robe and put on the new. Not take off the old person, but that was the imagery. Take off the old robe and put on the new. But here Paul doesn't just say, take off the old person and put on the new. There's something in between. What does he say in between the two? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is what grammarians call a permissive imperative or permissive passive. Be renewed means to allow God to renew me through the spirit of my, in, in the spirit of my mind. 
It's all that Paul has been saying when he prayed for them to be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit, that Christ might be formed within them. You can't just take off the old man and put on the new. This is not just a matter of personal reformation. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do it differently. These old, I don't like these old things. I'm going to leave them. I'm going to go in a different direction. No, it's, there's, there's something in between taking off the old and putting on the new. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds by... Uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit, by God working there, renewing and changing and transforming us. I'm so glad that is possible. I'm so glad that God can work in our lives and change and begin to change the old neural patterns that went in the wrong way and make new connections and, 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 and new patterns of thinking and of activity. Be renewed then in the spirit of your minds. Allow yourself to be renewed by the spirit of your mind and your minds by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, uh, renewing, renewing power, forming Christ within you according to the good pleasure of the Father's will. Then and only then can we put on the new person. This new person has been created. It's not something we make. The new person has been created by God, created and cre- is formed and created within us. It's made according to God's design in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Righteousness, of course, is right standing with God. It's being in right relationship with him. It means living uh, in his way. Holiness is closely related. What is holy has been set apart from God. It's been transformed. It belongs to him. It reflects his character. Um, It is possible to understand this as true righteousness and holiness as opposed to some false types of righteousness and holiness, and we can think of a lot of those, but it is likely that it means righteousness and holiness that is based on and springs from the truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. They had heard the word of truth, also called the gospel of your salvation, and they had believed it, and not just with mental assent. They had accepted it, embraced it, given their lives to the one whom it disclosed to them, A real embracing of the truth about Jesus produces real, genuine righteousness and holiness because it allows God to work in our lives. Now, we're told here this this new person has a new walk, a new way of life. There is a transformation from within, folks, but it shows without. It has its effect without. There's a new way of life that comes from it. And Paul begins to instruct us here in this new way of life um, uh, in, in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He began, all, these different instructions Paul begins sort of remind us of some of the key Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. He goes beyond that in in some of the things he says here. But it's significant that he begins with the truth. We've already been told that the truth, we've heard the truth in Christ Jesus. We've already been told that putting aside everything, we were to speak the truth in love, to be truthful in love, to live a life of integrity in love. We've already been told that, but now the first instruction Paul gives for the new person, how, we, how that new person express, expresses itself is to speak the truth, one to another, everybody to his neighbor. This is to the person you're close to, the person you speak to. 
Um, for he reminds us that we are members one of another. Now, tr truth is so fundamental. It's fundamental to everything that follows. If we don't live in the truth, all the other things get skewed. Everything else gets confused, and we begin to justify ourselves and to twist it this way and to twist it that way, to make, to make excuses for our, our faulty behavior. So the truth is very essential here at the beginning. And of course, it's, share, it's being truthful even to people out in the world. Paul is not excluding that at all. And you could take neighbor here as meaning your neighbor, just your neighbor in general. Paul seems to be, have a little more specificity here because he says, remember, we are members one of another. So he's especially focusing on not excluding a more general truthfulness, but expressly focusing on our relationships to people in the body of Christ. Do you realize how easy it is to compromise the truth? How prone we are to shape things to make ourselves look good and, and sort of to put it in our own favor. Do you know, I've really come to realize in the last several years that um, if every fact that I tell you is true, but when you sum it all up, the impression I have sought to make is less than true, I've been false. Let me put it plainly, I've lied. Every fact I say can be true and I can still lie because I can shape them, I can select them. People often justify this by saying, well, they didn't have to know everything. No, you didn't have to tell them everything. You don't have to tell everything. You don't have to say everything. You can be quiet. You don't have to answer. But when we, when we structure what we, and I see this happening so often, uh, what, what's brought home to me is I've seen it happening so often in the church. And what we do is we, we select to make ourselves look good, to cover up for ourselves. Sometimes people do this without even thinking. They're not conscious that they're, of, what, of what they are doing. But yet they do it, it's, it almost becomes a habit. So that in certain situations we learn that if we've hung, hung out with somebody long enough, we learn that whatever we, they say, some people around do, we have to discount it. You have to say, yes, but what else is there? What's behind it? That may be true, but what else? What, el what else is there? First thing in the, in the new life, the first thing that Paul tells us is laying aside falsehood. Put all falsehood away from your life. All delusion, all twisting of the truth, all falsehood, laying it aside. Speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for the, the person that's close to you. For we, as members of the body of Christ, are members of one another. He says that here in this first instruction, but it may, it's good for all the rest of them. It's good to remember in all of these instructions of how we should live, Paul is telling us, that we are members of one another as the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, one body, one spirit. Speak only the truth. The, the next thing is don't let anger get, uh, give the devil an opportunity. Be angry. Anger, of course, is, can be associated with murder. I um, mean, Jesus said, Jesus linked, linked the two. You've, you remember he said, they've said you shall not murder, but I say don't be um, angry with your brother. Um, 
Anger certainly leads, can lead to that. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now this should not be, um, this verse should not be used as an excuse for anger. Um, there, now there, there are times when anger is, there is an appropriate anger. Jesus was certainly anger, angry at people who um, were causing other people to stumble and keeping other people from coming into the kingdom of God. He had, if, if his words were not accompanied by anger, as they recorded, as his words as recorded in the gospel were not recorded by anger, some of them, I don't know how in the world we would un- understand them. The, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is um, um, a half-truth. Um, so there, there, there might be an appropriate occasion for anger against injustice, against, uh, uh, against the mistreatment of other people. There's a certain anger that is appropriate, for instance, against the killing of unborn babies. There's a, there, 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 is a, there is a, there is a time to be angry in that way. But nevertheless, most of our anger is because our own ego has been stepped on because somebody has done something that has offended us. And in any case, uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid to do what Jesus did in talking so harshly to people because I'm not Jesus. And, and I don't trust myself. You know, anger, anger takes possession of you. It can cause you to do things that you wouldn't normally have done, that you would set a wrong if you, let, if you, give, yourself, if you give yourself to it. So even, and it's, even righteous anger is... There's a caution with it. It's more like if, if it happens, but if, if, if there's anger, if it comes, Paul says, don't let it lead you into sin. Step back from it. If it happens, if something happens that causes you to be angry, don't let it lead you to do what you, sh- you know you shouldn't do. Um, and because if you do, if you give in to anger, what do you do? You give the devil an opportunity. You give him an opportunity to get in there and mess with your mind and mess with your heart and mess with your life. Um, so he said, don't give that devil, devil the opportunity. How do you keep him from giving the, you an opportunity? What's the next phrase that he says? Can I hear it? It's right there in Scripture. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. What does he mean? Take care of it right away. Don't sleep on it. If something happens and there's anger in your life, don't let it lead you into sin and take care of whatever it's done right away. I can remember one time in my own life in the last few years, I was really surprised at what came out of me. I was ashamed. but it was taken care of in less than 10 minutes because God's presence just filled up that place so and convicted me. I stopped the car and got out and had to walk back and talk to somebody to straighten it out. You know, don't, don't let it, don't give, the, don't give the devil any advantage. Don't let it fester. What, if you, what happens if you let it fester? Oh, it grows and it becomes bitterness and you, you become bitter toward other people. 
And then you, you imagine all sorts of things about them that aren't true because, you know, people we're bitter about, we're going to find some way to cut them down. Anything they do, we're going to find a way of criticizing it and of saying, that, you know, that it's wrong or it shows something wrong about them. It becomes a huge monster with, with, within me growing. So Paul says, if, if, there's, if there's anger in your life, even legitimate anger, but if there's any kind of anger in your life, don't give the devil an advantage. Don't let the sun go down on it. Get it all straightened out so that there's nothing that, that, that goes on and, and eats you and destroys you. Um, that steals your joy and warps your soul in bitterness. You know what, if you've ever given in to bitterness, just think about it. Did you really like it? Was it pleasant? Was it joyful? Did it make those around you happy? No. Now, it's easy to get sort of a pleasure, a perverse pleasure out of bitterness, but it's really miserable. Then he goes on to what you might, what theft, he says very clearly here. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, verse 28. So replace falsehood. Don't let anger uh, replace falsehood with truth. Don't let anger give the devil an opportunity in this new life. Here's how we live. Replace theft with generosity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with those who have need. Theft is to be replaced with industry. Now you say, what does that have to say to us? We're not thieves. No, you're not. I doubt if there's anybody here who's a thief. Um, um, so what does this have to say with Paul saying, replace theft with, in, uh, with, with industry, with working with your own hands? This is not so much, I mean, it does affirm manual labor, but it's not so much whether you work with your hands or with your brain it's re, or with something else. It's replace, it's replace um, theft with your own work, with your own involvement, and it should be your involvement which produces something good, something a benefit to people, not something superfluous, not something um, harmful or, 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 or what have you, but something that is good. Now, that's, that's good advice for all of us, even if we um, haven't been thieves. But Paul says something else, why are you to work with your own hands? Why are you to invest yourself in producing something good? Why does Paul say you should do that? To share with those who have need, to give. Theft is replaced with, with not just with industry, but with generosity. How many of us, when we go to work, we go thinking we're making a living, and that's true, that's legitimate, we are, that's good. We're going to make a living. God has called us to do that. But how many of us think, I'm going to work today so that I can have to give? But that's what God calls us to do. Not just to steal no more and to be industrious, but to be generous, to work so that we can give. What are the favorite checks you write? Well, probably you do it online now, some of you, but you, you, you write every month. I can tell you, well, Rosa writes most of our checks, so I don't actually write them, but I do the taxes at the end of the year. We've got it, so, every, so both of us know what's going on. We're 
got it, got it worked out. But, you know, my light bill is not my favorite check. And my gas bill is not. And even the grocery store is not, though, of course, I like what I get from the grocery store. I, 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 I kid you not about that. The favorite things are, what, are, are the things of giving to the work of the Lord. You know, of, of being able to support this and support that. This is a good word here as we need to make the budget. But I'm not, it's not, this is not a pragmatic thing. We, I'm not saying this this morning because we need to make the budget. This is just gospel truth. This is the truth of Scripture. And as Christians in our affluent society, we need to begin to think in this way. You know, how much should I give? Well, of course, the tithe is kind of, that's the minimum. We don't, you know, I'm not talking about that. How much should I give? That's a question. And of course, how much I should give, should I give is also a question of how much should I keep? They go together. Um, I can't answer that for you, but I, I can suggest a couple of things for you to think about. This is a C.S. Lewis quote. He says, he says you know, if, if you are enjoying the pleasures and luxuries of whatever social class you are in, and it doesn't, you don't seem, it doesn't seem to be hurting, you don't seem to be having to give up anything, you're probably not giving enough. In other words, you need to give until you feel it. Or another suggestion is, I'm thinking of making a new purchase, whatever is a major purchase to you, anything from a a big new TV set, to an automobile, to a house, to whatever. I'm thinking of making a new purchase. Stop and think first. If I didn't do this, what could I do for the work of the Lord? You know, there was a study on, on giving in evangelical churches a few years ago. The report on it in Christianity Today, the headline was, um, Scrooge Lives. Um, uh, a huge number of people in evangelical churches gave nothing. And poorer neighborhoods tended to give sometimes more than more wealthy ones. But the two biggest reasons, you know what the two biggest reasons people gave for not giving more? House mortgage and car payments. Can I make this car go a little bit further? Do I really need... Those are the kind of, and I can't answer that question for you. If you were to ask it, I can't answer it for you. But I can suggest that you ask it from the bottom of your heart. And to learn then the joy of giving. The joy of, of contributing what you have and what you can give to the work of the Lord. Here Paul is teaching the new person the new person in Christ, the one who has been renewed in the spirit of the inner person, who's been renewed and is, has become not the old, selfish, greedy, clutching person, but the new person is not one merely who is one who is industrious, but one who is generous, generous from, and not just for the work of the Lord, friends. You know, Actually, I, I'll be honest with you, I only give very minimally, if at all, to non-Christian charities. You know, I'm, some of them are good. March of Dimes, other things, they may be good. But I figure there are enough unsaved people who give to them. 
So, <laughs> you know, I take what I have, if I'm gonna give it, I give it through some, to some Christian cause and, or, and I give it to people I know and, and to causes that I know. I don't just throw it away. Um, but um, um, we are called then to be that kind of a generous person, to have the joy and the delight of giving and seeing the Lord's, seeing the Lord's work go and knowing that we have, we have a part in that. Very important part of being a new, the new person. Then, so it's replaced theft with generosity. But Paul has more to say about our speech than just that it should be truthful. That's where he starts, it should be truthful. But then in verses 29, verses 29 and 30, replace unwholesome speech with helpful words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, so Paul, Paul tells us, think before you speak. Um, I need that admonition. <laughs> I don't know about you. But think before you speak. He's already told us that we are to be truthful in love. Truthfulness is important, but we are to be truthful in love. We're not to say anything that tears down. Nothing that may harm or hurt the hearers. Nothing from our own desire to build ourselves up and to tear others down or to build ourselves up at the expense of others. Nothing that would demean or unfavorably compare other people with, with ourselves. All of that is excluded from wholesome speech. That let, let no unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth. Every word should be, should lead to, if you use the, the biblical word or the, the theological word, edification, to the building up of the body of Christ. Does that mean you can't be humorous? No, it doesn't by any means. Does that mean you have to be long-faced? Not at all. Does that mean you, you know, that, that every, every word has to be about a serious topic? I hope some of them are, <laughs> but not everyone. There is, there's not a place in the Christian life for frivolity, but there's a place for joy, and there's a place for humor, um, and there's, a, there's a, a, a place for good-natured small talk that oils the relationships uh, between people. I learned that in Sierra Leone. There, I can talk for 15 minutes and not say a thing. Because it's all relational. It's all greeting words. It's just all about looking at, uh, re reflecting on, uh, accepting the, uh, the worth of the other person and re showing them respect. You haven't, you, you exchange feelings, but you haven't really exchanged any, any, um, uh, any real, um, any real co uh, content. But, um, and so we are called here then to, to guard our speech from careless or thoughtless words. One rule I made for myself a long time ago in humor is no cut down. If there's any cut down or demeaning, I cut down myself. You know, I can laugh at myself and, um, um, and that's fine, but no, no cut down, and if I, and if, and my the rule is if everybody doesn't think it's funny, if everybody isn't enjoying it, it's no good. 
You know, now sometimes you don't know that. Doesn't mean I've never said anything that hurt anyone, but it was not intentional. Um, because this is, what, this is what Paul is telling us here. Replace unwholesome speech with helpful words. Words that are going to help the other person grow in their own love, grow in their own obedience, grow in their own knowledge of the truth. And he reminds us here, um, he tucks in, well, it's kind of, he kind of, tucks in is not the right word, he concludes this exhortation with do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's already told us that the Spirit is the foretaste and guarantee of our eternal inheritance in Christ. He's already said, talked about us being sealed. He reminds us of that sealing here. Do you want to grieve the one who is the seal of your eternal salvation? The Spirit of God who's the mark of all believers. It seems that the Spirit of God is often, this kind of thing is often associated with our speech. Perhaps the easiest way we can grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the unpardonable sin here, but the easiest way in which we can grieve the Holy Spirit is by our unwholesome speech because it's so easy to come out of our mouth. And the Holy Spirit who is present with us. I thank God for one thing, that if anything comes out of my mouth that grieves the Holy Spirit, I am grieved because the Holy Spirit lets me know that he is grieved. He lets me know right away that he is grieved and that there is something that has come out of my mouth or has been done that is not pleasing to him. And I'm so grateful for that, for his faithfulness to do that. But I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in my heart, the very guarantee and foretaste of eternity. And so there's an encouragement to watch our words, make them be wholesome and kind. That's the expression, that's, that's a primary expression of the new person that God has made in us. Finally, in verses 31 and 32, we have the, to summarize this new walk for the new person, replace malice with gracious forgiveness. I really, verse 32, it's really my favorite in his chapter. That all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's not the favorite one. That's a good one. But the favorite one is this. Be kind to one another. Instead, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other just as God as in Christ has forgiven you. Verse 31 here is really a summary or at least a conclusion highlighting what must be put off in the old person and what by the renewing of the Holy Spirit we're able to put on and what the walk of the new person is. Uh, bitterness. Bitterness, we've already talked about that. That's the anger that festers and grows and causes hatred to flow out of it. All bitterness. All wrath and anger, they, that of course is um, similar to bitterness, but it's um, more active and immediate. That wrath and anger that comes out when somebody does something that we perceive as against us or as hurting us or as violating our rights or cutting us down, that, 
that wrath or anger, that reaction. Um, because of my ego, my ego has been insulted or attacked. Clamor um, is more or less expresses the disturbance that might come from that. For clamor here, you might think of a scene that somebody causes because they've been offended and they've gotten angry, so they make a big to-do about it. All of that is to be, to be put aside. Slander, what's slander? Blasphemy is what it's called in some translations. What, what, is, what, is, what is slander? Saying evil things about somebody that cuts them down. Of course, we think first of saying evil things that aren't true, but really saying evil that's unnecessary to say. Obviously, if you're called to witness in court, you have to say it. There are appropriate times, but, when, but we, we should really be forced. It should be something that is absolutely essential before we begin to talk evil of, of another person. So all that kind of slander, that cutting down of other people, that Yip, 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 behind, be, be, behind the scenes. And also, of course, blasphemy against God is included here as well. Speaking evil, speaking disrespectfully, speaking wrongly about God. Let all of that be put aside from you. Uh, and then there is the last word here. It's, it's separated. All of these, Paul says, and also malice. Malice is the final word. The summary of all of these words. What is malice? Ill intent. Ill, intent. ill will. It's, it includes a, a particular ill intent, but it's usually more than a particular ill intent. It is, it is that whole disposition that wishes ill toward other people, that's from which our ill intent and our ill plans, it is that... The, abs the absolute opposite of goodwill toward my neighbor. The total summing up of what is, not, what is contrary to loving my neighbor as myself. It is malice is all, is, is all of that in reverse. It's the person who lives out of hatred it is, and lives out of ill will and desiring to cut the people down around them, often making everybody else around them miserable. But all of that, Paul says, all of that ugliness, all of that mess, all of that junk, that's the old man. Put it aside. It's the one that's, that's corrupting and being corrupted. It's the one that's corrupting you morally and destroying you as a person, deteriorating your, your actual person. You know, when, when you live for God, God, God makes us all the person he intended for us to be. Sin degenerates the very person, the very mind the very being who we are. The devil's ultimate purpose is to melt us down into nothing, to destroy my, my personality, my person, anything that is of me in, that expresses me as an individual. Um, so here, all of that, all that's put away, and what, what is in its place? Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The word kind is a, a really strong word. We can think of it as a, as a light word, but it's a strong word. It has the idea of, of good intent, almost the opposite of malice, of wanting the good of the other, of wanting to make the other person feel comfortable, not in their sin, but wanting them to feel comfortable in my presence, 
being concerned about their welfare in big things and in little things. Um, a genuine love and concern for the person around me that expresses itself in how I treat them and how they feel in my presence and what, how I reach out to them. Be kind. Tenderhearted has, you know, sometimes mercy. When you, when you feel compassion for a person, sometimes you feel it here. You know how they, when the compassion, how, the, how almost you contract here. This, this word kind of refers to that. It's be, be good bowed almost. <laughs> but um, but um, it, is, it is that sympathy for the other person. That being, putting myself in their position and being able to see it from their way and being concerned for them, having a real compassion. This is not a bloodless thing, friends. This is not just, oh, I'm wishing you good sort of intellectually. This is the compassion that Christ forms within us that I, have, that I really feel for you, that I'm concerned about you, that I'm compassionate. Be kind, tenderhearted, and then, oh, forgiving one another. And there is more than one word for forgive, and this does mean forgive. It's not, in many ways, the most common one for the New Testament. I haven't counted how many times each of them are used. But when I think the word forgive in, in, in the New Testament, I don't think of the word that is used here because um, there is another one that is common. This word is related to the word for grace. It's related to that word back in chapter 2, verse, verse 7, where it says God lavished his grace up, upon us. And it, it is be forgiving one another. It means be, there's the idea of gracious forgiveness. Not of just, okay, I mark it off on the books but of a gracious forgiveness, of an abundant forgiveness, of giving them grace, of giving, um, uh, of, of restoring that relationship with them, of reaching out to them. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and why should you do it? Because God, in Christ, has given you the same kind of gracious forgiveness. You're giving away what you've been given. You have been given it in abundance far more than you or I deserve. We have been given it in abundance. And now as the new person is made in Christ, we're called to give it away. I can't summarize this section any better than looking at verses 24 and, and, and um, 23 and 24 and then 32. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new person, which in, in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, generously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also generously and graciously forgiven you. Anybody have a question or a comment? Something on your heart you'd like to share? Yes. Brother Paul.
So we overlook it and actually cheer it on because we have ties that way. And of course, I'm thinking somewhat politically, but it happens on East, both both sides. It's not exclusive domain of any one individual, but is there a corporate application of this so that when there's corruption and and, and ill speaking and, and and put downs and things like that, where does where does that come in when it's a group thing? I'm not saying it. But what responsibility do I have when I'm a part of that group? I don't know if that question got recorded. It's a great one. Is there a corporate application of this truth? What happens when somebody, maybe a leader in a group, is, 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 is not speaking the truth, is, is not acting in this way, is acting out of mal malice or bitterness? What is my responsibility? Is I part of that group sitting there? Do I be silent? Do, what, what, do I, what do I say or what do I do? Uh, that's, I, I wish I had all of what you said on the tape, Paul, but on the recording. But no, that's, that is very important. It has, I understand when you say politically, you're thinking, but, but it has application in the church. You know, one of the things, to be honest with you, that is at the end here of my ministry, you know, after 35 years of teaching, one thing that breaks my heart is how often, when I look back, how often I have seen that even in leaders in the church. Um, and, you know, when we profess holiness, but allow this kind of thing to go on without, uh, and, and, and cheer people on, and even call them, consider them leaders in our movement, and, and we have this kind of behavior, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And I don't know, I can't tell you how to take a stand in any given situation, but... We do need to take a stand with God's guidance. And, you know, one thing I refuse to do is play with my own mind. When things are said that are not true and they're being said in an institution, I, I, I will not believe them. I will not go along with it. Uh, and I've gotten in trouble for that sometimes. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I think this is very, it's very, a very crucial, very important thing that, that, that we need to, in a godly way, but take a stand even in, in our institutions. Perhaps people need to be confronted who are leaders. Look, you're not acting in a godly way. You know, when you blow up in a meeting to get your own way and claim to be a holiness person, there's something wrong. Um, Teresa, really? Matthew 13, 33, because Jesus died for all, 
and he makes his good to reign on the evil and the good. And he says, uh, the Father speaking through Jesus, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was cut down. And there's only one tree at the end of the good book. And it is Jesus Christ, our tree of righteousness. Mm. And I love it that what we say about another person, we are speaking of the Lord. <laughs> and may only good be spoken of the Lord. That's, that's certainly valid, Teresa. When we speak evil of somebody else, we certainly do reflect very poorly on our Lord. That's true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't just have to do self-reformation. We thank you so that all that Paul has been talking, his whole excitement in God's great plan of salvation is that each one of us can experience it both as a new person and as members of the body of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the, when we, that when we embrace Christ, we are renewed by, within by the Holy Spirit. And we can live this new life. Give us the grace, Lord, but we need to cooperate with your grace. Give us the grace that we might be new people and live in this way, in the truth, in generosity, in purity of heart and mind, with godly speech, with love instead of malice, with kindness and generosity and um, compassion and forgiveness. That we indeed might reflect your character in our lives with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thanks. I should wait till somebody gets up here, shouldn't I? I still try and take that off myself.